I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. We have to look at our time as this valuable resource. It's not unlimited, and we have to choose really carefully how we want to spend it. And I think when you invest that time in something you love, you know, people could argue, well, you're taking that time away from your child, and shouldn't you be raising your child? And it's like, I, I am raising my child. I'm coming back a much better focused parent by going out and doing that for myself. And then I bring him along on trails as well. This is Chris Fagan. Chris is a published author, wife, mother, and owner of her own consulting company. She's not a professional adventurer, but she spent a good deal of the leisure time in the last 30 years of her adult life seeing what she's made of. In my mid-50s now, I, I think success has morphed a bit um, for me. It's, it's, it's not about crossing the finish line. You know, it can be about stepping out, trying something new, moving into the unknown. You know, ultimately, you're, what you're doing is opening yourself up to can I do this or can I not do this? And it's to me, along the way, you discover these new places in yourself. Chris has run 100-mile ultras, sailed and paddled through the Inside Passage, and cycled in Tanzania. Adventure is a big part of her alone time, but it's also formed the foundation of her marriage and family life. And so much of your family life and partnership has been a big adventure, <laughs> which also sounds corny to say, but it's true. Well, I mean, it is. It is It is true, and uh, it's what connects us and... Um what excites us. It bonds us versus some people have said, well, I couldn't have done these things with my spouse. It would have broken our relationship. And for us, it's it's bonding, not breaking. I chose to share Chris's interview this week, which we recorded back in February for a couple of reasons. First, she's a really thoughtful mom. And though Mother's Day is a holiday that many of us have our reasons for choosing to celebrate or choosing not to celebrate. What Chris says about caring for family really resonated with me. Second, living during this global pandemic, I'd recommend listening to this conversation through a kind of COVID-19 filter. What Chris says about small moments, resilience, and appreciating the people in your life feels especially poignant today. We'll learn all about Chris after this. This episode of She Explores is brought to you by Solomon. Solomon is committed to making functional and beautiful products for running, hiking, skiing, and however else you like to get out to play. This year, Solomon is celebrating all the ways women experience their own inherent beauty, be it exploring on summits or along local trails, with a muddy face or sun-kissed cheeks, and everywhere in between. Whatever it may be, Solomon wants you to feel confident in your own skin and in the gear that supports your adventures when it's time to resume them. Later in the episode, we will introduce you to Solomon's latest hiking shoe made for you, the Via. Learn more about Solomon's wide range of shoes and apparel at Solomon.com. That's S-A-L-O-M-O-N.com. This episode of She Explores is brought to you by Deuter. You might know Deuter for the technical hiking, backpacking, snow sport, bike, and travel packs they've been making German-engineered since 1898 for comfort, fit, and ventilation. 
but they also have an incredible community of leaders supporting the dream for a bright future. Later in the episode, we will be checking in with Deuter Ambassador Nicole Brown, founder of Women Who Hike, about all the adventures she's looking back on and forward to with her Deuter bags and personal friends. Learn more at Deuter.com and find the perfect bag for your next adventure online at REI.com or your local online outdoor retailer. In Chris's book, The Expedition, about her and her husband's unguided journey to the South Pole, Chris writes a lot about the intentional choices she makes to be a role model for her now 18-year-old son, Keenan. I was curious what Chris gleaned from her own parents growing up in the Midwest. What did they want to model for her? So there's five kids in my family growing up with my parents, and they... They were not these people who were outside adventurers that took us on camping trips and all of these kind of outdoor experiences. We grew up in the Midwest. I was in Champaign, Illinois, and then Des Moines, Iowa. We moved to Iowa when I was in sixth grade. And my parents really modeled just super supportive of any interests we had, any anything that I would say hey, I'd like to sign up for this activity or, you know, this after school program or this YMCA summer program. They were always all in. They were just created a great foundation for, I think, us to, me personally, to explore my own independence. They were just modeled hard work and my dad was like the ultimate optimist, had the most positive attitude of anybody I've ever met. So he just had this such this can-do attitude. When I look back now as a mom, I might not have recognized this younger, but my mom was really more, a little more introverted than my dad. And she was kind of like the silent superhero of stability for my family. She ran everything you know, as far as the finances of the family. And family was always first. Like, relationships mattered the most to her and our family. So family time together, you know, playing cards and games. And, I mean, they just really supported us also, you know, me being like a free-range kid. And it might have been that era, too. But, like, roaming the neighborhood without any time constraints, riding your bike around, going to friend's house. There was really no such thing as helicopter parenting back then. So games outside in our yard. We lived on a cul-de-sac. So, like, kick the can. Everybody would come over and play these sorts of running around games. There was no pressure to fill our schedule with activities. I think just a foundation of open-mindedness and being open to the possibilities around you and and working hard towards things that mean something to you. Chris was fortunate to have parents who created a safe base for her, which filled her with confidence. It felt more like a solid, solid foundation on which I could build to go anywhere I'd want. So I, it was like a confidence builder and like knowing that I had this family that loved and supported me no matter what to always go back to. And I had that my entire life. Wow. What did together time look like as a family? Most of the time it had to do with either 
sitting around and playing board games or card games at the kitchen table. Lots happened at our kitchen table. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, being outside. My dad, he did coach some teams of my um, older siblings, like Little League Baseball and stuff like that. So, and then attending some of our activities. Hmm. So I'm guessing, and, and now I'm like flash forwarding like crazy and we'll go back again, I promise. Uh, but I'm guessing that you have those micro moments now with your family of three, but then you also have these big trips that you plan for. So it's a, a different kind of family model. I think that's true. I, I think so. And, you know, I think sometimes people, when I talk to them about some of the bigger adventures that I've done they forget that, you know, that's only, you know, a slice of my life. That's not everything. So you have these micro moments of adventure that's, that are smaller, that are everyday moments, that are every week kind of moments that make up your life. Growing up, Chris didn't have a clear picture of what she thought her life would look like as an adult. But whatever she took on, she took it on with enthusiasm and a strong work ethic. And I loved team sports. You know, I was never like the best person on the team. I loved being part of a team. I loved interacting with people. I loved belonging. Those kind of things made me feel alive. So I think I just had like a hint of, you know, those were maybe going to be things that I would want to pursue more. Because in my career, as a when I'm not adventuring, I lead people, facilitate brainstorming sessions and do creative thinking. So I, I like the interaction with teams and people working together to do something bigger than they could do on their own. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of um, warmth and enthusiasm and confidence is contagious. So I can see why it led to the current career that you have today. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in terms of the adventure that you go on, like that's, that's cumulative, right? So like you don't necessarily know when you're a teenager that you're going to go off and do these things. And you probably don't even know necessarily adventure to adventure (laughs) what you're going to be taking on. It's something that's accumulated over your life. I think that's really true. I think it starts with this mindset that I was just sort of describing and just being open to the possibilities. I, that is who I am. I am somebody who is really open to possibilities. So things present themselves or an interest emerges and suddenly you're off and running in a new direction on something that's interesting (laughs) and engaging. And, you know, that's how my interest in various things has happened. You know, I grew up in the Midwest. There's no mountains. We didn't live near a lake yet. Somewhere along the line, I decided I wanted to become a mountain climber. And then I decided I wanted to learn how to kayak. And so those things emerge as I am in a new new environment, exposed to new people. And all of that learning is exciting to me. So my partner's mom is named Pauline, and she loves love stories. She's always asking how couples met, and she wants to write them all down in a book one day. The story of how Chris met her husband, Marty, is pretty remarkable. It's already in Chris's book, The Expedition, but it'd be quite the addition to Pauline's, too. Here's Chris sharing how she and Marty met 22 years ago this month. You know, in May of 1998, both of us arrived at base camp on Denali, which is the highest mountain in Alaska. And... It's at about just over 20,000 feet. And we both were there with 
our own team. So I was a team of three women from the Seattle area and we were guiding ourselves. He was a team of three men. He was in living in Honolulu at the time. And then his two teammates were from Washington state as well, which was just kind of a fluke. Anyway, our two teams arrived at the same time at base camp. And the way that mountain works is you basically move up when the weather permits. And so you're, you kind of end up being on the same time frame as other teams who started at a similar time frame. So we, we arrived on the same day. We started moving up the mountain at the same pace. And so we found ourselves camping next to each other at these camps. And there were times where there was, you know, we were in camp for like five days straight waiting out a storm. So you are just talking through tents to the teams around you and that kept happening so you know it it started out with marty talking to our team hey what are you ladies doing over there and what's happening and weeks would go by and suddenly it's like chris what are you doing over there and my my two teammates would be like oh what's happening you know it's all (laughs) about chris now you know but you know we seriously we are three women who've never climbed this mountain. This is the hardest mountain we've ever imagined. And we are laser focused on the objective and being safe and not looking around at all these people around us and worrying about relationships. But, you know, somehow we both arrived um, on the summit, on Summit Ridge the same day. His team was coming down from the summit and we were just 20 minutes behind and we were going up that summit ridge and knowing we're going to make it right and so we passed it's a pretty narrow ridge and we hugged each other like intuitively just hugged each other mm-hmm. congratulations you know goggles are full of tears marty's crying that was my kind of my first he's like i've been crying ever since i got to the top because it was his third try he had, he had not made it the first two times and um so we made our way down and then they ended up getting back to base camp before we did, but we flew off the same day, ended up back in Talkeetna, which is where you fly in from. And we are both our teams celebrated together and we stayed up all night, chatted and hatched a plan to everybody flew home and we stayed an extra day to vet these <laughs> new feelings. And then six weeks later, he left Honolulu and moved to Seattle. Quit his job as a police officer for 11 years, followed his heart, never looked back. You know, I mean, it's just amazing, actually. We've been married now for 20, almost 21 years. What was it like, um, and I know you mentioned this in the book, like, what was it like seeing each other outside of all of the, you know, the gear that you were wearing while you were (laughs) climbing that mountain? Oh, that's great. Yeah, so... You know, I wrote a book about my South Pole adventure. And so in that, I'm describing, you know, the really the first time he saw me was when we were back in Talkeetna. I just showered and I just feel like alive again because I hadn't showered for 25 days. And he brought me a hamburger. He knocks on the door. He's bringing me a hamburger because you're starving. And he's like, oh, my gosh, I knew you were gorgeous under all that Gore-Tex, <laughs> which was just that classic line, which cracked me up because really we just, he saw my little parts of my face, but you're wearing so much gear all the time. And um, it was really revealing. Like he almost, we both just, you know, our filters just weren't working because I don't know why. (laughs) And you just said what was on your mind and yeah, that's how it worked. Yeah. Well, it's also kind of nice to think that like, 
there's this connection, like this kind of unnamed connection, you know, that if you can connect through tent walls, you can connect through all that Gore-Tex, like, I don't know, there's like this hopefulness in that for love. It's really cool. Well, I think that's true. And I think another part of that is, you know, you're meeting somebody kind of on the same ground. You're like, you did not try to convince this person to go climb Denali. They didn't Mm. try to convince you. You arrived at a place where you both chose the same challenge, you almost know you each have something really in common, a way of living, a way of being. You both have jobs, but you make it fit in. You both are around the same age. It just, yeah, it's like stars aligned. You know, we often talk about those, those other two times, if you would have made it, you would not have been there in that year. So we, we think about adversity sometimes and not making our goal, and sometimes there's something hidden behind the reason. We'll hear more from Chris about parenting through adventure and more after this. This episode of She Explores is brought to you by Solomon. Solomon is committed to making functional and beautiful products for running, hiking, skiing, and however else you like to get out to play. This year, Solomon is celebrating all the ways women experience their own inherent beauty. We are joining them by taking cues from the Solomon Squad and the many incredible women a part of it to learn about the ways they are recognizing their own beauty and how Solomon is supporting that journey with quality shoes, apparel, and gear. Made especially with your feet and mind on the trail, Solomon has released a new hiking shoe with no male counterpart, the Via, a gorgeous shoe inspired by nature herself that will keep you looking and feeling good on your future adventures. You will have a chance to win a pair of Vias in Solomon's upcoming giveaway contest, along with some other great gifts to celebrate your own unique beauty. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for details in weeks to come. Learn more about Solomon's wide range of shoes and apparel at Solomon.com. That's S-A-L-O-M-O-N.com. We're back. Chris and Marty settled into life together and took on new challenges. Right after uh, he moved here, then this is funny because he did actually instigate this. He said, Chris, you are in the best shape of your life right now. And he at the time had um, been running marathons and I had been running to train, but I never thought I'd run a marathon. And he said, all you have to do is train for about four to six weeks more. You can definitely run a marathon. You're like there. And so that's that's what was our next adventure. We he moved here, and then Seattle, the Seattle Marathon is every November, right around Thanksgiving time. And so we ran that together, and I did. I ran my first marathon with him. Sometimes we open each other up to the possibilities of what we can do before we know we can. And that's one of the things I love about our relationship. Supporting her husband during his first hundred mile race also piqued her curiosity. Being the spectator at that 100-mile race was what convinced me I wanted to do it. And the reason was I had never experienced something, I think I say this in my book even, It's it was so raw and real at the same time. It was like human endurance, potential, and drama all mixed together. And it did not matter if you won. It was about your own personal 
drive and adventure and seeing what are you capable of? And to see all of that unfolding before me for the, you know, 29 hours that I was following through aid stations and, and helping Marty and pacing him and running with him for some times as well. And seeing the joy and camaraderie and also the, you know, the suffering, but also the joy through the suffering. It was amazing. And I thought, do I have, can I do that? Is it possible? And it was just sort of a personal challenge. And I was really drawn to the possibility. So this is a personal question. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. (laughs) Uh, uh, But thinking about the way you describe that, it sounds, uh, how would you compare that to childbirth? Hmm. I don't know how they compare. Let me think about this. Childbirth is, is, you know, sort of a, it is an endurance event for sure. Um, it's about 24 hours in my experience with my son, Keenan. And you, you know, you know, it's going to be um, something amazing. There's this awesome finish line. So I definitely think from my perspective, because I was running by the, before I had my son, that that in mental kind of mental training of endurance and enduring things that come up moving through the highs and lows. I think you're, I think you're onto something there as far as how it helped me get through that experience because I had a lot of back labor. So, uh, which means, you know, laying down just did not feel good. So I was on my feet Mm -hmm. for, for much of the 24 hours or I was on my hands and knees trying to get the pressure off my back. It was a mental and physical challenge. And I think I just, it did give you more confidence that, okay, it's all going to be okay. This pain will pass and something wonderful will emerge once it's all done. When you and Marty did have Keenan um, and leading up to that, did people push a narrative on you or tell you about like how your life was or wasn't going to change once you had a child? My experience was that um, I did not have a lot of people telling me about how life's going to be with the child because the, I guess really the truth is the people who had children around me weren't, weren't, you know, like people that may not be as adventurous or do similar kinds of activities. You know, I didn't really relate my life as much to their lives anyway. We sort of approached our life different anyway. And so we kind of figured we would do that with our child as far as being able to fit work and fun activities and adventure and, you know, just approach life as an open canvas that we get to paint paint the picture versus you're going to have to fit into a box now because you've chosen to have a child. So I did have one family that's an adventurous family that had a child about a year before us. So I was kind of looking at what they were doing, but I really think we just were kind of learning on the fly and deciding, believing we could be the parent parent in our own way that would fit our lifestyle. It can be really frustrating to hear from someone who has chosen to live a certain lifestyle that one should or shouldn't like quote unquote settle down. It, it just can be frustrating. I agree. I, I think, I mean, you know, even before deciding to have a child, 
even, oh, well, you've, you have to get a, a job that, you know, so now you, you can't do those things. And you can fit things in when you have a job or you choose a job that has more flexibility. You know, it's really about, I guess it's going back to what, you know, what do you want your life to look like? And whether it has means marriage and kids or doesn't, it can still have that same look. It just has these other elements at the same time. Chris and her husband live at the base of Mount Sinai in Washington, which was an intentional choice so they can make the most of accessing nature close to home. When Marty first moved here to Seattle area, I lived in West Seattle, which is about 40, 50 minute drive to the mountains. And then when we had our son, we immediately said, okay, well, that's one way we're going to, to make sure we can try to be in the mountains and on trails and running and spend a lot of time with our son is to be closer. Living one mile from my front door to the trailhead of Mount Sai, along with a whole trail system, allows that. You know, you're not spending all this time in the car. We have to look at our time as this valuable resource. It's not unlimited, and we have to choose really carefully how we want to spend it. And I think when you invest that time in something you love, you know, people could argue, well, you're taking that time away from your child, and shouldn't you be raising your child? And it's like, I I am raising my child. I'm coming back a much better focused parent by going out and doing that for myself. And then I bring him along on trails as well. Yeah, so what were some of the ways that you, as a family and then individually, like intentionally infused adventure into your life? Even though we would, when I was doing a lot of running training, I might train with a friend and then my husband would spend some time with my son and they would have their own little adventure at home together whether that be playing games or doing something outside in the yard, playing basketball or going on their own hike. Or, you know, sometimes my husband and I would run together and we would have that time together to bond and our son would have a play date with a a neighbor. And then as my son grew from being able to sort of toddle up the trail to then hike with his own little backpack, you know, then we started bringing him on bigger and sort of more enduring adventures and age seven we were we were really itching to do something internationally and we thought how old does a child have to be to to go on a trip internationally and we just sort of made up age seven seemed about right he seemed (laughs) he could handle it so you know that's when we took him on his first international trip to Tanzania and we brought this tag along bike with us and we we biked around Mount Kilimanjaro we watched him blossom right before our eyes from being kind of worried and nervous. And can I do this? And where am I to this is awesome. And look at all these different kind of people I get to meet and new experiences I get to have. And we've continued that throughout his life. Marty and I have done a few of these bigger experiences together, but the bulk of what we've done is with our son, whether it be kayaking in the um, Northwest with him, camping, backpacking, fast packing, and um, a variety of different trips internationally. 
the average person goes on your website and sees all of these trips that you've taken over the years. And it makes them almost seem like big and small at the same time. But when you think about the day-to-day life and so much of it is was planning for these, training, getting ready for those those big trips. So what does that training look like as a family? Does it feel like family time when you are training together? Yeah, you know, for these trips that were definitely family driven, I do feel like the the training and planning is a time for us to, you know, imagine the future, imagine what we we are going to do together. Especially the planning part, you know, before we go places when my son was younger and I guess even into even when he was older, we would, you know, study these places and watch videos about them and learn about them and understand them from different dimensions so that you know, like the cultural aspect as well as the geographic and, and then also what we would be doing from a, you know, technical standpoint as far as if the trail we were going to be hiking or that sort of thing. Um, and then the training, you know, we didn't really, I, I have to admit my son, it's just like kids are so resilient and they're just naturally <laughs> strong. So, you know, we would get him out on, you know, certain amount of trainings with us, but he was never on a rigorous schedule at all. It would be more that making sure he's comfortable with his gear and wearing a backpack and using the different kinds of things in his pack and filling his water bottles and, you know, all these kinds of things. So he's super competent now. He's, when he was 16, he took a group of his friends out on a three-day hike around Mount St. Helens, which is in the Northwest, a 33 mile hike that's by themselves, these five 16 year old boys. Oh, so cool. And he was super competent. And, you know, some of his friends had, they all had some competency, but he was sort of, you know, the lead with another friend of his. And, you know, we had all the safety kinds of things, the GPS, so we could track them, but they were in charge, you know, and know how to work the stoves and know how to put up the tent and, you know, know how to follow the map and, and how to be safe and smart. So that, that's amazing. And we didn't really push him to do that, but you know, when you're doing it with your family, it just kind of becomes habit, I suppose. Yeah. And like um, your mom was that calm presence that gave you confidence, you and Marty being strong and equipped and being those models on those group trips uh, you know, rubs off. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one of my parenting philosophies is really what you just said as far as we we have to model what we want our children to know and understand and and see that we value. We can talk about it, talk, talk, talk. And I think about 20% of what you say really sinks in, maybe more. But, you know, it's like after a while, your child just doesn't process that. or Or maybe they don't know what it means until they see it enacted in life. We'll hear more from Chris about her trip to the South Pole and what came next after this. You might know Deuter for the technical hiking, backpacking, snow sport, bike, and travel packs they've been making German-engineered since 1898 for comfort, fit, and ventilation. But they also have an incredible community of leaders supporting the dream for a bright future. We're here with Deuter Ambassador Nicole Brown, founder of Women Who Hike, who is dreaming up future backpacking trips and outdoor excursions. 
So I was actually in between travels uh, during the height of the pandemic. I was in Washington, D.C. lobbying for public lands. And the plan after that was to actually go to those places, the Grand Staircase and Escalante in particular. Those plans are, of course, on hold. But it's kind of neat that I get to look back on and also kind of reflect. And also really cool that I actually got to take the new Up series back to DC. It is an urban commuter pack from Deuter that is made from all recycled materials. So as far as new adventures go, I kind of envision a summer or even early fall backpacking trip. One of the things I really miss is just feeling the weight of like a full backpack on my back. Learn more about the Up series, the upcycled commuter pack from Deuter, on sale later this summer at Deuter.com and find the perfect bag for your next adventure online at REI.com or your local online outdoor retailer. We're back. I first learned of Chris through her expedition to the South Pole. She and Marty were the first married Americans to ski unguided to it in January of 2014. Chris writes about it in her memoir and has done multiple interviews that dive into the why of the journey. It's an incredible feat, one that took years of preparation before 48 long days spent skiing for 10 hours a day. When they were living it, in many ways, it took everything out of Chris and Marty. They often had to look outside the tent for support from friends and family through calls with their satellite phone. But just like at home, they helped each other out in small ways. In Antarctica, the days were long, eight to nine hours of dragging sleds that were 220 pounds in weight. And we would be in single file um, the way that we traveled so that the person in front would be navigating and the person in back would get a little break. And then about every hour we'd switch leads. So on, and you're constantly dealing with different weather. So it's, you know, average temperatures like 20 below and then you have days where it's clear, but days when there's low light or whiteout. And the whiteout days were just really hard because you have to stare at your compass all day and it's just grueling mentally and physically. So one day, Marty looks out the tent and it's this whiteout day. And, you know, we were well into the, the trip. We were maybe in day 30 or so day 30. And so Marty looks out and he says, you know, I, I can't lead today. I just can't lead. If you can lead, I will follow. And, you know, what he was saying was, Chris, can you lead all day? And, you mm. know, neither of us had ever led all day because you just need that mental break. You need, you need, but it was one of those moments where I had that instant, I am a, a wonder woman all my powers are coming to me at this moment of adrenaline, you know, and I, I am going to be there for you because you rarely ask me for help. You are like the strong person, you know, in like physical endeavors, it seems. And so this means you really need me. So I did, I led all day long and I felt like I was really there for him and he could follow and, you know, that we could still make progress together. And at the end of the day, he collapsed into the tent. And normally, Marty um, 
would change. And then I would leave a voice blog. We left a voice blog for our followers and they um, would be posted to our website. So I was usually the voice blogger, but this day Marty said, I'm going to leave a voice blog. And he grabs the, the satellite phone and he picks it up and he says, you know, today was the hardest day for me and I had nothing. And I told Chris, you know, if she could lead, I'd follow. And today Chris is my hero. And today represents why we make such a great team. Aww. You know, later that night, we laid down in our sleeping bags next to each other and he had, uh, was playing a song in his iPod, in his, in his head. And he shares the, it with me. And it was this song. It was a Hans Zimmer song and it was called Honor. And it's from a movie, you know, that my husband loves and he shared it with me, said, I just want to share this song with you. And to me, it was his way of saying, thanks for being there for me. I, I can't express in words the vulnerability that he felt around that, but he was able mm-hmm. to share that moment with me, you know, and then two days later I had dead legs and I felt like I was moving like a snail. And he, you know, without me asking, went and took, took uh, weight out of my sled and put it into his. And so I think that's, that just shows how, you know, intimacy works in a lot of ways. Those are two examples spending a day, the one day off together in our tent and just laughing and watching videos and eating felt like just luxury and intimacy to me, <laughs> you know, giving each other extra Pringles. We had these 17 Pringles a night, <laughs> G- giving a few more to the other person felt like, you know, that was like a real way of expressing here to take, take, take this offering or, um, <laughs> You know, allowing each other to, especially me, just sort of cry uncontrollably when things got really hard. Yeah, that's all the ways that I can, there's lots of ways that was happening. I I love how precise that number is, 17 Pringles. (laughs) We had to count, you know, because it needed to be even and we wanted them to last. (laughs) What was it like coming back after that big expedition? You know, as you can imagine, well, first of all, the, the immediately getting back was awesome, you know, because being <laughs> being reunited with my son was, you know, like finding the piece of your soul that was missing for two months and putting it back in place. So that was amazing. And so that first week we just spent just almost 24 hours a day together. And, you know, we moved my son's bed into our room for four days and had a big sleepover um, with him and my dog. And, but, you know, following that, my husband and I, you know, I have my own business and he actually had to leave his job in order to make this South Pole trip happen in the end. So one of the good things is we didn't have to jump right back into jobs, which gave us a little bit of breathing room to process all that had happened. And, and really reconnect with family and friends and get our bodies back because uh, they had deteriorated quite a bit in Antarctica through the 48 days to the South Pole. Getting ourselves to run again, everything just didn't feel aligned anymore. And I guess really staying, learning to stay present in the moment and, you know, not worrying about what's next or, 
the natural question for everybody when we got home in the first three months was, so what's next? What are you going to do next? And we're thinking, oh my gosh, I, I, am, <laughs> I am still recovering. It's going to be a while to recover. And really, and I started writing my book and that was a great way of helping me process because in regular life, things happen and you're able to process them and you can talk through them. And maybe you said something to your spouse and you didn't mean it to be uh, taken in a certain way and you work through that and you're done. But there you didn't have time to work through things. And so I realized there were little things festering inside of me that I didn't know were there. That when I started writing about them, I, I have such a visceral reaction, like I'm getting really angry or I'm getting really sad. Like it's still in there and I could get it out of my body and I would go and talk to Marty about things. And he's like, why are we, why are we talking about this? And I said, because I just remembered it, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> but it would work. It, he'd be like, okay. And work through it. And you know, that was all really good. In the years following the Antarctica expedition, Chris's resilience was tested in new different ways than she'd ever experienced on the trail or on the water. She described it to me as another expedition, just not one of her choosing. But a lifetime of adventure has helped her and her family build up the stamina to move through these moments. In 2016, two years after we returned, a lot of things started happening that were, you know, you never planned for. They're not really on your radar. Um, my, my father had been fighting heart disease for a number of years and, and he died. And at the same time, my mom had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and so we had to move her to where, uh, assisted living to where I live. And then Marty, my husband, was diagnosed with squamous cell carcinoma, and so, uh, which is a form of cancer, skin cancer that had moved into his body. And um, so, you know, here we are in the best shape of our lives, and you know, Marty is diagnosed with cancer, and. It had moved to his lymph nodes and his lungs, and so he has stage four cancer. Yet he had no, no he has no symptoms of cancer, and still works and is active. Um, so, so many things that happened in Antarctica and in our in our kind of lives leading up to there prepared us to deal with this you know, adventure that we had not planned for and would never wish to have. I think of cancer when I really look at it um, and how we are prepared for it is, you know, it's, it's a, its own whiteout. I call it our cancer whiteout. And that first six to eight months was a total whiteout where, you know, we, we, in a whiteout, there's no up or down, there's no horizon you completely lose your bearings. You don't know which way to go without a compass. You're nauseous. I mean, all of these things were the same. And we really, it took us that long to kind of refine our bearings. You know, the, it was an uncharted territory for us. And we really leaned into the only way forward was to go through it. And that's what we learned in Antarctica you could stop and set up your tent, but then you're never going to go anywhere and you're going to run out of food. And, you know, same within life. I mean, we just, we just have to keep moving through it. And, 
you know, you feel that pain, you feel, you, you feel the struggle, but you realize that it's, it's your choice and how you, you know, decide you want to think about it. Um, in Antarctica, we'd, you know, we'd kind of come up against before going our own mortality. You know, what if we were to die here? Kind of reminded us that we all don't know when we're going to die. None of us know if getting into the car and driving down the street, if an accident could happen or going out on a trail and we get lost, something happens. You know, there's many things that could happen and just realizing that we have to, you know, we have to find those things that make us feel most alive and hold on to those. And, and that's what's gotten us through cancer is to not let cancer define who we are, but to, to let adventure and all the things that we love define who we are despite having cancer and going through Marty's cancer journey together. And it seems like I don't know, maybe it hasn't become more important, but like running has remained really important to Marty. Yes. You know, just running or any kind of physicality is a way to hold on to the things that Marty knows as himself, as his identity, and um, to sort of, even if we're not, you know, we're not right now running these long hundred mile races, but even, you know, he runs the three miles from work to Seattle Cancer Care Alliance to get a treatment when he he's on immunotherapy treatment on and off and then runs back to work. Even that is his way of just saying, no, cancer, I'm going to come get this treatment and I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to come in there in my shorts. You know, anything we can do to kind of keep that mentality I think his healthy mindset has helped him to, you know, fight off cancer, even though it's still slowly growing in him. Chris wanted to share with you all some of what she's learned being a caregiver. One thing I've learned is that everybody's cancer is different and everybody's experience with cancer or other terminal illnesses is unique. And it really depends on, you know, where that person that you're caregiving is in the process, whether they still have all their physical capabilities or or not. So speaking from my own experience with Marty, you know, he still can do most, you know, if you saw him today, he would not look like he has cancer yet. So much of what we carry around with these diseases is um, the fear of what it's going to do to us ultimately. And so I really talk to people about um, just taking one day at a time when you first find out a loved one has cancer or a terminal illness to, as you progress through it, we, we like to project so far into the future of what this is going to look like. And then of course, ultimately them leaving us. And um, I think it's so much healthier for us to just take one day at a time because focusing on what is it, what is working. So my, my second thing would be like holding on to the good in each day and, and keeping that optimistic mindset. What I've learned is that research in cancer specifically is um, experiencing breakthroughs every month. And so 
really as time goes by be just maintain that hope that the research will catch up to help his cancer because his specific one doesn't have an exact treatment that's working and you know i'd also say just that you you just never as a caregiver want to feel like you're alone you want to help the person with cancer as best you can you're there you're supposed to be their helper but you also need you know you know you might need help too so you know telling other people what you need and um and what you don't need because there's a lot of unsolicited advice about what you should do to help your cancer that's not relevant to your cancer uh, so sometimes that you want to be really mindful of that and um i guess finally you know be an advocate for for what you need with your doctor uh we have really great doctors but i believe that you as a caregiver um sometimes know the whole case and everything best. And I found this even recently with my husband where we requested to do some additional tests and some additional things that the doctor didn't bring up, but he was completely open to doing. And so, yeah, that's what I would, I would hold on to and don't let cancer define who you are. Would you say that you've been following Marty's lead in terms of what he needs? I think it's a real give and take because I do follow what he needs, but I sometimes suggest what I think he needs because I think people with a terminal illness, at least, you know, in my experience, you know, a husband with terminal illness, you know, he doesn't want to be a burden. He doesn't want to appear weak to his son. He wants to, you know, he really wants to take this on like it's a challenge in the wilderness where it's like, let me depend on my skills where, you know, in a lot of times you can't and you have to be okay with letting down your guard and asking for help. And yeah, that's definitely one thing that has helped us is um, recognizing, I can recognize when he's, it's all in his head and he's not allowing me to see it and asking for him to share what's going on in his mind. Yeah, helps to really know somebody in that instance. For sure. Yep. You know, it, it makes me think about you two helping each other in those small ways in Antarctica, too. You know, I have to say that is so true. And this might seem silly, but if you really understand the person you're trying to provide caregiving, it is the smallest things that can really make his day. For example, my husband is somebody who loves, like my desk is kind of a little bit chaotic and cluttery and his is <laughs> clean. And that's how he likes, he likes order and makes him feel in control. And like, if the kitchen is a little crazy, it makes him feel out of control and cancer already makes him feel out of control. So if I can, you know, put my, put my dishes away and that just makes his day. If I say, I'm going to, make dinner and we don't have to make it together. I'm going to do it for you so you can have a little more time to work out because you have limited energy right now because you're taking this treatment. That is gold. It's like I've just given him a million dollars. So when you when you look back at the past you know, I think you said it was it's over 20 years of marriage um, and, and being with Marty. Is there anything that you would change looking back? You know, I can't I can't 
really think of anything I would change. At first, I thought, you know, I wish I would have met him sooner because we met in my early 30s. And sometimes I think, oh, that would have been cool to have met him earlier. But then when I really think about it, I realize we were both at the moment in our lives where we had, we were had a certain level of maturity and independence and confidence in our own abilities and had done our own adventures without each other and grown kind of into ourselves. So I just feel like we were able to bring all of that to each other at the right time. So, you know, sometimes we want more time with somebody, but I think it's the quality too. And and so I I can't think of anything that I would, uh, I would definitely change about that. Well, that's beautiful. That's, um, it's really nice to hear too, just because, you know, you never know when you're going to find your person, you know, and people might have many people, like everyone's different, but it's nice to to look back on it and think like, no, the timing was right. Then all of those experiences brought me to, brought you to where you were on that mountain that day. Yeah, definitely. Not that I wouldn't have loved to if, you know, that, oh, I wish I could find somebody that, that, that longing. But then kind of when you let it, when I let that go is when I found him. So I think it just says, you know, we all, no matter if we have another person on the journey with us, there's ways that we can find happiness and satisfaction in our lives. Thank you to Chris for taking the time to talk and for your patience in my releasing this interview. As I mentioned in our interview a couple weeks ago with um, Lindsay Falkenberg, it's been tricky to know when the timing is right for a particular interview right now. But I'm really excited for you all to learn more about Chris through her website, chrisfagan.net. That's C-H-R-I-S, Chris, and Fagan is F-A-G-A-N, so C-H-R-I-S-Fagan.net. And you can find her book, The Expedition, wherever you find books and on her website as well. I'll link everywhere to find her in the show notes and via our episode landing page at she-explorers.com. Thank you to our sponsors, Solomon and Deuter. Your support means the world to us. You can find She Explorers on social media, our website, and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at Gail Straub. If you enjoy listening, there are different ways to support us. You can subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. And if you'd like to connect, join us in our She Explorers podcast Facebook group. Music in this episode is by Maiden, Lee Rosefair, Josh Woodward, Swelling, and Kay Angle using a Creative Commons attributions license. Ads were read by Tori Duhame. She Explorers is a production of Ravel Media, and it's released on Wednesdays. Until next week.